The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. And Jesus said, Which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The parable that was read tonight, very familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. From this parable, we have received a, a name, the Ministry of Mercy. It's a name that comes from this parable. It's, it's a it's a way of describing a particular kind of ministry, and the Reformed churches have used it for a couple hundred years. You see, at the end of the parable, Jesus is asking the expert in the law, who is the hero of this story? And the expert in the law could have said the one who gave the uh, transportation and the one who gave the crisis medical uh, treatment and the one who gave the financial subsidy and the one who did all the... Instead, he says, the one who showed mercy. Because you see, the word mercy is, is a, uh, an overall topical name. It's, it's a name that, under which all of the uh, things that I just mentioned can be subsumed. Mercy is caring for people who are sick, who are poor, who are in need. The ministry of mercy is meeting people's physical needs, economic needs, material needs. Ministry of mercy is the meeting of felt needs through deeds. Now this parable tells us an awful lot about that ministry. If we really want to understand the parable, though, before we can even begin to extract the principles that this parable tells us about the ministry of mercy, we have to understand the context. It's so important in understanding uh, the meaning of a parable to see the setting in which Jesus uh, delivered it. And we're very fortunate in this particular case that we have a very uh, lengthy and uh, detailed description of the circumstances uh, under which Jesus gave this teaching. We're told on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, the reason for this is this expert was trying to trap Jesus, and probably the reason he wanted to do that is if you read the, uh, the, seg- the section in Luke 10 before the parable, and, and even before in Luke 10, Luke 9, and so on, if you look at Jesus' teaching, you'll see Jesus often talks about receiving the kingdom of God now, something that can be received now. And that, that had to sound very suspicious to an expert in the law. He believed that Jesus was in some way denigrating the law, not holding it in the proper esteem. It, it almost sounded to the law expert, probably, that Jesus was saying, you don't have to obey the law to be saved. And so the law expert decides he's going to trap Jesus. He's going to ask Jesus a question that will make him say something that shows he didn't really respect the law. So the lawyer's out to trap Jesus. Jesus says... In response, after the lawyer says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, Jesus has got an agenda, too. Jesus is out to trap the lawyer. But, you know, Jesus' traps are always traps of love. I remember one time trapping a kitten who was stuck in the middle of a, of a, a stream. It was on a rock, and uh, kids were throwing rocks near it, trying to splash it or knock it off. 
and I tried to trap it in order to, in order to, to save it. And of course, uh, it didn't take real kindly to it. Uh, Jesus' traps are always traps of love. Remember that next time you're in one of them. His traps are always traps of love. And what he's doing is he sees the lawyer, believes that he can be accepted by God in his own righteousness. So Jesus is out to trap the lawyer. Who do you think is going to win? So Jesus says, what is in the law? How do you read it? Now, that's a pretty interesting question to ask a law expert. There's only two ways to possibly uh, answer that question. One is the lawyer could sit there and read the five books of Moses to him. And, and of course, that wasn't the way to answer the question. The other way is to summarize the law. And the summary that the law expert gives was very commonly known uh, among all the law experts, that all the law tends to be boiled down to these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why in the world was Jesus trying to get the man to look at that? And then why did he have the audacity to say, okay, do it. There it is. Do that, and you'll be fine. He was trying to get the law expert to look at the law really, really well, because in a sense, Jesus is trying to say that if you focus on the rules of the law, if you focus on the details, if you look at all the rules and regulations, and you, you, know, you can follow a lot of the rules and regulations of the law, you start to feel like a pretty good person. But if you look at the principles beneath the law, regulations, I mean, beneath the rules and regulations, you see the principles, the goals, the things that God is really trying to get at in the law. If you look at the righteousness, the love that God really requires, and righteousness and love are just two ways of saying the same thing. When you look at the holiness God really requires, underneath all the rules and regulations, you begin to get demolished. Look at them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What is he asking for? God is saying, number one, I want a heart and mind completely absorbed in and completely submitted to me. I think it was Archbishop William Temple who said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. I don't even remember where I read that. I don't even know if he's the one who said that, but I've never gotten over it. You know what he's saying? He's saying the way you really know who your God is is when you don't have anything else you have to think about, when you don't have anything else distracting you, when your mind can go to the thing that it's most interested in going to. Does it go to the Lord? Do you just, do you just find that uh, every spare minute you, your mind flits away when it gets freedom? It flits to just thinking about the excellencies and glory of God? Or does it go somewhere else? Mothers, does it go to your children that you're worrying about all the time? Uh, fathers, does it go to your job? Or does it go to the uh, little, you know, little house on the beach that you really would like to build? Or where does it go? And what Temple was saying, if he's the one who said it, and he says, religion is what you do with your solitude, he's saying, that is your God. When you really look at yourself, stripped down, you have nothing else to think about, what do you most enjoy thinking about? What is your mind and heart really absorbed in? And when you begin to think about it, you begin to realize, oh my, oh my Lord. I don't love you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, 100% of my mind, 100% of my thoughts, 100% of the time. No way. And yet that's the essence of sin. This is the thing that all the rules and regulations are trying to get at. How, do you, how are you doing so far? And then the second rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Meet the needs of your neighbor with all of the power, with all of the alacrity, with all of the uh, uh, spontaneity, with all of the joy with which you meet your own needs. I remember preaching on this once and uh, a girl in my congregation came up and she had just been in the local junior miss pageant and she'd come in 10th I think out of 11 or something and she said let me get this straight if I have a heart that if I love my neighbor as myself if I understand your sermon correctly I should have been just as happy for my friend who won as I would have been for myself if I had won 
And I had never thought that's a very searching application. And I realized that that's exactly what God is saying. That that's the kind of love he demands. Love your neighbor as if he were yourself, you see. And I looked at her and I said, uh, yeah. And she says, that's, that's an unreasonable religion you have there. And you see, that's what Jesus is trying to say to the lawyer, you know. Well, that was a better sermon than I had just preached. You know, that's one of the ways in which you learn these things. Uh, what he's trying to say to the lawyer is look and see. The law of God is just describing God. This is just a delineation of his glorious goodness, you see. This is just showing us the holiness of God. And this is what God demands because, after all, he has given us everything, right? And all he's asking for is for us to give him back what he's given us. That's everything. And, and yet it's staggering when you see it. And the more you look at these, these laws under the laws, you know, when you look at these principles and you see what God is demanding, you're staggered. And you say, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that is why Jesus brings it out. That's why Jesus is saying to the law expert, do it, and you will live. Do that. Go ahead. Everything will be fine then. And the lawyer, you see, is already squirming. And he says, it says here, but he wanted to justify himself. So you see, the whole point, Jesus is trying to say, see that you can't save yourself. And if only the lawyer at that point had done the right thing, we would never have gotten the parable of the Good Samaritan, you see. If the lawyer, the lawyer should have said this, he should have said, oh, I see. Well, then what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus could have said, by the mercy of God. Mercy. Mercy is how you get saved. Nathan Cole, uh, a little Connecticut farmer that came to Christ in the Great Awakening in the 1740s, left a little account of his spiritual journey. And he talked about how he became a Christian. And I've never forgotten it. He said, he's talking about the preacher said, he listened to this sermon, and then he says, and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. And you see, you have to come to that point before you can really become a Christian. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to get out of the law expert. He was trying to say, don't you see? Break up your old foundation. Because if the law expert had said, well, then what must I do? Then Jesus Christ would have come to him and said, by the mercy of God. And this is the mercy of God. The mercy of God is this. You, we, are spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt. We're poor. We have nothing. Nothing meritorious. Nothing to recommend ourselves. But God has prepared riches. Riches of righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ. And though Christ was rich, he became poor. That through his poverty, his death on the cross, we might become rich. And by believing in him, by saying, Lord Jesus, I am nothing. Be my everything. By faith, his righteousness is transferred into our account. You see? What is the mercy of God? God bestowing spiritual riches on spiritually bankrupt people. And that's what it is. Do you understand that? That's the thing that Jesus is trying to get across. And you know, before going on, I guess we ought to say, do, do you believe that? Do you believe that? You see how simple faith is? It's saying, Lord, I am nothing. Be my everything. I know the Stevie Wonder song is it that talks about you're my everything. That's a, that's a nice impulse, but you see, here's where it belongs. Be my everything. It's a simple, it's so simple to do that, and yet, we're all like the lawyer. We can't do it unless Jesus Christ helps us. And if you can do it, if you're even trying to do it, you better fill your mouth with the praises of the sovereign grace of God because, you see, you don't have it in you to do it. You're just, we're all like the lawyer. We don't like it, we squirm. We don't want to say, I'm nothing, be my everything. And if you're trying to do that, if you have done that, praise God for it. Like the hymn goes, uh, the hymn goes, My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. 
See, God, Jesus has come to all of us like the lawyer. But now the lawyer says, it says here he wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And what he's saying is, come on, Jesus, be reasonable. What does that, what does that law really require? You, you don't mean everybody. Oh, what do you mean by that? So he's trying to get Jesus to whittle it down, you know. He's trying to get Jesus to take this law and whittle it down far enough so that he can jump over it and hurdle it, you see. And then Jesus tells us the parable. He doesn't leave the man where he is. No. He tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as he does it, boy, do we learn a lot about the ministry of mercy, believe it or not. Here's what we learn. First of all, we learn the absolute necessity that the ministry of mercy is of the essence of being a Christian. It's not an optional thing. Now look. We hear the story about the Samaritan finding a Jew beaten and robbed, and the Samaritan hated Jews, you know, and Jews hated Samaritans. You know the place in John chapter 8, I think, where the Pharisees are just boiling over and they want to call Jesus the worst thing possible, and what do they call him? You Samaritan. Uh, the Jews uh, routinely prayed against the Samaritans in their daily prayers. They used to sit down. This is how much they hated them. They used to sit down and they say, uh, bless mommy and daddy and, and give us a stay of daily bread, and oh Lord, don't let any Samaritans into the resurrection of the just. You know, they, they just hated the Samaritans. In this case, you have Jesus putting a Samaritan in the parable. The Samaritan comes along and finds, the, finds this Jew laying in the road. What does he do? First of all, he risks his life to stop because that was a dangerous place. You know, the, the, let's not be too hard on the priest and the Levite that run on by. That was, the Jericho Road was, a, was really a back alley. It was a place where, where robbers routinely uh, jumped on people because there was all sorts of rocky crags nearby and Frankly, it was just like walking through the worst part of town, saying, here I am, you know. It was a very, very dangerous thing to do. And let's be, let's be fair to the priest and Levite. They walked by, the guy was probably dead already, probably whoever had just beaten them up was nearby waiting for somebody else. Let's get going. You see, they're just reasonable people, just like you and me, thinking of themselves. That person probably doesn't need my help anymore anyway, you see. The good Samaritan came and stopped. It, he came to where the man was. He risked life in them. He destroyed his schedule, whatever that was. And I'll tell you, a lot of American Christians don't mind giving time to such a ministry, but oh, I don't mind giving money to such a ministry, but oh, they don't want to give time. He, came, he stopped, he got his hands dirty, you see. A lot of American Christians don't mind giving even money and time as long as they don't actually have to meet or touch these sorts of people. And uh, the Good Samaritan got dirty, and then look what he did. He gave him medical treatment. He gave him a pretty healthy financial subsidy. We're not, it depends on the commentary you read. But uh, some people say that he put this man at the inn until he got better. Now, how long does it take to get better after you're beaten to almost to death? Uh, and how would you like to put somebody up in a motel and, and pay the bill, or a hospital and pay the bill until the man recovered? It was a hefty sum. He stayed there overnight with him, from what we can tell. In the morning, he told the innkeeper, I'll be back and see what happens. The, the good Samaritan gave this man money. He gave him medical treatment. He gave him love and advocacy and friendship. He got his hands dirty. Now, let's not miss the point. Remember why Jesus is telling this parable? He is trying to show this man the essence of what it means to be a Christian. He's trying to show the, he's trying to show the law expert the essence of the love that God requires. See, remember that the law expert says, now tell me, what do you really mean by being a neighbor? And Jesus is not, Jesus is trying to show him the essence of things, and he brings up what? Caring for the poor. You, you realize it's an awfully interesting thing. There's only two times I know in the Gospels that someone comes and asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Remember the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10, and here. And in both cases, Jesus turns around and he's trying to go for conviction of sin. In both cases, he says, well, do you obey the law? 
You see, are you being righteous and loving the way God wants you to be? Trying to get them convicted of sin. They say, sure. And in both cases, what does he say to the rich young ruler? He says, sell everything you have and give it to who? The poor. And here, he's saying the same thing to the lawyer. When Jesus Christ is trying to show people the essence of the love and righteousness that God requires in the life, he brings up the ministry of mercy. Now, this is a great shock to most evangelicals. Caring for the poor, most of us say, is fine, it's good if we can get to it. But we do have a big budget this year, you know. And uh, we'd like to give our ministers a raise. You see, they always say that to ministers, to, to get them off their case about the poor sometimes. And we, we like to think of ministry to the poor as an option, something that some people like to do, and yet Jesus Christ shows it's of the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's commanded. It's not an option. You see that again and again. For example... In Matthew 25, you've got one of the most stunning passages in the Bible, where Jesus on the judgment day is trying to deal with the sheep and the goats, people who are really Christians and people who just claim to be Christians. And he says to the people who claim to be Christians, I know that you're not, you don't belong to me, because you see, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was without shelter, you didn't take me in. I was sick and you didn't take care of me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, huh? Paraphrased, I know. They say, huh? And Jesus says, yes, you see, all those people that were there in those conditions, that was me. Now, you know, that, does that make sense? But that comes up in the Bible again and again. In Proverbs 14, 31, it says, if you insult the poor man, you've insulted God. God says, when you insult that poor man, you're insulting me. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, if you lend to the poor man, you've lent to the Lord. You give to the poor man, you've given to me. And what does that mean? Why does God say that? One of the most illuminating stories I know that helps shed light on this whole way of talking is the true story about a woman who was very, very wealthy. She had no children. She had no heirs. Her only heir was a nephew. Now, whenever she was around this nephew, boy, that nephew was awfully nice. You know, he acted like the milk of human kindness just flowed through his veins. And the, the, the woman, you know, who was a good lady, used to say, I wonder really what he's like. Because whenever, you see, he was in her presence, whenever he came to her house, he was a pretty nice guy. So what she did was she dressed up like a bag lady. And she went and sat outside uh, on the steps of his townhouse in the city. And she waited for him to come out. And when he saw her, he kicked her and told her to get lost. She was going to call the police, and he was very, very cruel to her. And then she knew what he was like. And you see, why do you think God says in Isaiah 1, it says, you, you come to church, you bring your sacrifices, you bring your offering, you see, but isn't this the fast I choose? Isn't this the offering I choose to, to care for the oppressed and to take the homeless poor into your home and so on? Why is God talking like that? Just like the lady. The lady is saying, when you come to my house, you look one way, but how do I know what you're really like? I can tell what you're really like when I see how you treat the bag lady. And you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is literally saying in Matthew 25, I am the bag lady on your steps. How you treat me on the steps really tells me what you think, what your heart's really like. It tells me whether your faith is lip service. You think I'm going too far, friends? What do you think it means in Matthew 25? He says, if you reject them, you've rejected me. It's just like what that lady found out when she became the bag lady. Jesus is the bag lady. The ministry of mercy is not an option. It's of the very essence, and the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Why? Number two, the first point I just made, got it? It's absolutely necessary. The ministry of mercy is necessary for a church. It's necessary for Christians. But secondly, let's take a look at the dynamic of what gives you the motivation, the dynamic to, to do ministry of mercy. 
And if you understand this second point, you'll understand why God is so demanding of, of the ministry of mercy. You see, it says, when he came to where the man was, look here, it says he was moved with compassion. You see, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. It's a weaker way to say it. There's a compassion inside any real Christian who knows he's a sinner saved by grace. Let me say this. Why do you think God on Judgment Day can tell real Christians from false Christians by whether or not they take care of people in need? Do you think he's saying that only the social workers are going to heaven? Do you think he's saying you're saved by your works? Oh, no. But he's saying that your, your care for the messed up, your care for the, the needy, your care for the marginal, your care for the outcasts, will tell whether or not you really believe the gospel, whether you really are a sinner saved by grace. You see, look, if you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, it makes you, first of all, very patient with the messed up people. Look at a homeless person. They smell a urine. They've got no resources. They've got no teeth. They've got no friends. They've got no money. They've got nothing, nothing to recommend themselves. If you are a sinner saved by grace, if you believe Isaiah 64, 6, it says even your best deeds are as a menstrual cloth, then when you look at a person like that, you know you're looking in a mirror. You know that that's how you look to God. Don't you? And the Bible says, you see, you're going to have a totally different attitude toward people like that. You're not going to want to just get your skirts up and say, get me away from them. And number two, if you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, you'll also be very generous. Jesus Christ, you see, if you knew that you were bankrupt and that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich, if you know that, you're going to be very, very generous. Look at Matthew 18. Remember that parable? There's a king... And there's a servant, and the servant owes the king 10,000 talents, an infinite sum. And the king comes to the servant and says, pay up. And the servant says, I can't. Forgive my debt. And the king says, all right. So the servant walks away, and he finds a second servant. And the second servant owes the first servant $5, let's say. And the second servant says, the uh, first servant says, the second servant, pay up. The second servant says, I can't. Forgive me. And the first servant says, no throws him into prison. And when the king hears about it, the king comes to him and he grabs him by the neck, let's say, and says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? My friends, if you believe you've been forgiven an infinite debt, you're going to be generous to people. Very generous to people. Suppose I had a, suppose you were dying and I suddenly came up with a medicine and I said to you, look at this medicine. Food and Drug Administration finally let it go, finally let it out on the market. And this medicine absolutely for sure will cure you if you take it. If you take it, you will surely live, but if you do not take it, you will surely die. And you say, great, give it to me. And I say, wait a minute, you may not want to pay for it. You know, it's very expensive. It's so expensive that to pay for it, you are going to have to uh, probably sell your house and move into a little apartment. You're going to have to sell one of your cars, maybe both of your cars. You're going to forget about vacations for two or three years. So I say, you just may not want to. You have to hawk your VCR, you're, you're a compact disc player. And you look at me and you say, are you kidding? What good is my VCR without that? If I don't have that medicine, what good is the compact disc player? What good is my house? What good is my, my cars and vacations? You see, that medicine is so precious to me now. All those other things that look so important to me have paled. If you're a sinner saved by grace... Jesus Christ is precious to you. 
He's so precious to you that all these other things that used to really be controlling you, things that used to get all your happiness out of, things that you hated to give away, they've become eternally and utterly expendable in an, in an eternal way. And the Bible says anybody who knows they're a sinner saved by grace will be generous, will be kind, will be open to the marginals and the messed up. But you see, if you're a moralist, if you're a person who thinks, well, the reason I'm a Christian is I'm a pretty good person, you're going to feel no you know, no motivation to reach out to people like that. You're going to say, well, pick yourself up. Do something. Get yourself a job. Come on. And that attitude betrays that you don't understand grace. You see, the motivation for the ministry of mercy is not guilt. It just doesn't work. I've had people come and say, hey, you've got to take care of the poor because look at all the money you've got and they got nothing. You know, that works for about two days on me. And then, you know, you don't really... You say, well, yeah, but I worked hard for this. I earned it. It just... The guilt doesn't work, but grace is the motivation that inevitably leads to a sensitive social conscience and a heart and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to people in need. It's inevitable. If you, if you really take the grace that you've got, and if you really take the gospel and you begin to work out the implications, it's inevitable. Do you understand the dynamic? You see? The compassion that's in there if you, if you know you're saved by grace. So we see the absolute necessity of the ministry of mercy. We see the dynamic of the ministry of mercy, which is grace. Let me show you one of the dimensions of the ministry of mercy. Don't forget the whole point of this parable is that, is that this, the law expert is trying to get Jesus to make this kind of whittle it down. He's trying to say, well, what do you mean by loving your neighbor? You don't mean anything too radical now, do you? And we all try to do that. We try to say, yeah, ministry of mercy, helping the poor. I give it the office. You see, I don't want to get my fingers dirty. I do my bit. But you see... This parable is showing us what the ministry of mercy is. Sacrificial, radical, personal involvement. I'm sorry, we just can't get away doing what the law expert tried to do, whittling it down, you see. Jesus Christ puts a Samaritan in there because he's trying to, 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 to tell the lawyer, you can't just confine your ministry of mercy to people like you, people that you like, you see. Anybody in the road, anybody you find in your road, anybody out there is your neighbor, Jonathan Edwards has a very interesting little statement. Somebody once asked him, uh, somebody in his congregation once said, I can't afford to give to the poor. And Edwards, uh, Edwards said this, and I'll have to translate. I know it's in English, but it is Jonathan Edwards. He says, we are obliged to give to others until we suffer ourselves. How else will we bear one another's burdens? If we do not relieve others' burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? He's a little brilliant for us. You have to think about this. You know what he's saying. He is saying, what does it mean to bear another person's burden? It means to let some of that burden slide over. You know, here's a person with 100 pounds. You want to help bear his burden? Then at least 20 of those pounds are going to shift over on you. And when a person says, I can't afford to help someone in need, what you mean is, I can't afford to help without it burdening me. I can't afford to help without some of that person's inconvenience, some of that person's being strapped falling on me. I can't afford to help without it changing my lifestyle. And, and Edward says, well, that's ridiculous to say I'll only help bear another person's burden if it doesn't burden me. He says, you haven't even begun to bear someone else's burden until some of that person's problem has fallen back on you, until you're giving sacrificially, until you're giving, until it hurts. Are you doing that? Are you involved in meeting physical and material needs to the place where the burdens are falling on you? Are you doing it out of a sense of compassion? Out of a sense of what God has done for you? Hmm? One last thing. The ministry of mercy has impact. 
oh yes, the ministry of mercy is necessary, the ministry of mercy arises out of the grace, uh, experience of the grace of God, the ministry of mercy, its dimensions are exceedingly broad, we can't whittle it down, but one more thing, the ministry of mercy has a tremendous impact on people. Now, you realize what Jesus does here at the end? We're not really sure that the lawyer's converted, we really don't know what happened to the lawyer, but the lawyer had it, the tables turned on him. You notice Jesus Christ in the beginning was asked, who is my neighbor? But at the end, Jesus said, who was the neighbor to the man in the road? It's a different question. And what he's doing is this. Jesus could have put a Samaritan in the road, right? Beaten and broken up. And along came a Jew, and he could have told about a Jew doing something to the Samaritan, and then he could have said, go and do likewise. And and the lawyer would have said, no self-respecting Jew would do that. Let him die. Kick him in the head and put him out of his misery. But instead, you see, Jesus put, put the lawyer in the road. And he has a Samaritan come along. And then he says, wouldn't you want the Samaritan to do that to you? And just by asking who was the neighbor, by asking the law expert, who was the hero of this passage, and the law expert just saying, he couldn't even use the word Samaritan, I think he said, the one who showed mercy, there's an impact there. The lawyer couldn't wiggle out of it because you see the ministry of mercy, when you give it to someone else, that has an impact. And Julian the Apostate, one of the Roman emperors who tried to stamp out Christianity, but he saw it, he saw it growing, and he was so upset about it, he said to uh, one of his friends in a letter, he said, nothing has contributed to the superstition of Christians and their charity to strangers. Why, the impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He says, that's why the Christians are spreading. The Jews take care of the Jewish poor, and the Greeks take care of the Greek poor, and the Romans their own poor, but these Christians, they're promiscuous, see, with, with, with their generosity. They take care of everybody. What's gotten into them? Who are they? And you see, people notice that, and it has made an impact on them. Poor Julian, he couldn't stop the early Christians because their ministry of mercy had an impact. The ministry of mercy arising out of the experience of the grace of God, a ministry of mercy that wasn't limited but was radical and broad in its dimensions. At the essence of what the church did, you can see it when you read the, the New Testament. Well, what about us? What about this church? What about you as individuals? Let me just say this in closing. This isn't the sort of thing that's real easy to get involved in. I'm just saying that if you're a real Christian, though maybe you've never had much of a conscience prick until tonight, I hope some of you have been pricked, you've got to realize that down deep, if you're really a Christian, there's a button. And that if you take the gospel of grace and preach it to people, preach it to yourself, eventually that button gets pushed and you go, oh, I need to do something. You get pricked in the heart. Every real Christian's got a button down there for the ministry of mercy. Are you, am I pushing it? I mean, is anybody out there feeling it being pushed? Then do something about it. But don't forget this. Before you can be a neighbor, you need a neighbor. You see, before you can be a good Samaritan, you've got to see Jesus as your good Samaritan. If you're just, if you're just a, a respectable person who thinks that you're going to heaven or you're being accepted by God because you're a nice guy or a nice woman or, or something, you'll never be able to do the ministry of mercy until you see that Jesus as your good Samaritan that you were laying in the road, dead in trespasses and sin, laying in your blood, and every other religion went by and couldn't help you, but Jesus Christ came to where you were, you see, and put you on in his place and died for you and healed you, you see. And until you see Jesus as that, and until you're overwhelmed with Jesus as that, until you see that you've had a neighbor, only then can you be a neighbor. You understand? Robert Murray McShane, the great preacher in the... Uh, in Scotland in the 1840s, closed one of his sermons like this. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom the Christ cannot say on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Your proud dwelling rises amidst thousands that have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. I think Harvey Conn once told me that every year 20 to 30,000 homes go through the whole, I mean, 
occupied homes in Philadelphia go through the entire winter without any utilities. Your proud dwelling rises amidst thousands that have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have little clothing to keep out the biting frost, and you don't darken their door. You heave a sigh at a distance, but you don't visit them. My friends, I'm concerned for the poor, but today I'm more concerned for you. I don't know what Christ will say to you on that great day. And now I know there are many hearing me who know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not begrudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. 1843. The man wasn't a socialist, I tell you. And the reason I read this quote is because I'm not sure I have the guts to say this directly to people. I say, look at what this person said. May God give us all the courage and the love to be neighbors. Let's pray. Our Father, how grateful we are to you that your Son, Jesus Christ, came not to be served but to serve and to give his his life a ransom for many. We pray that we might be moved by that so that we might be moved toward our neighbors, so that we might reach out to them in word and deed and truly, again, take this nation the way that that Roman Emperor was so frustrated that your people were taking the Roman Empire by storm. We pray, Father, that you would make us people that you can be proud of, models of the Good Samaritan and models of your Son, the Great Samaritan. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is the end of side one. Please fast forward to the end and flip the tape over.